It's the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem. Any Jewish male who could get there were required to get there. This is 50 days after the wave offerings of Passover Day. That's what Pentecost means, 50. It's also known as the Festival of Weeks. Jerusalem is pretty packed, not as packed as Passover. On Passover, you packed up the babies and grabbed grandma, and everybody headed to Jerusalem. But on Pentecost in Jerusalem, it's mostly a whole lot of guys. Luke tells us the 120 followers of Jesus are still huddled together, waiting. Suddenly, somewhere around 9 o'clock on this Pentecost morning, it's showtime. The promised helper, the Holy Spirit, is sent. His arrival is unmistakable. Jesus talked about this game-changing moment with his disciples in the upper room the night before his death. If you didn't listen to podcast 112, please do so. In the Old Testament written in Hebrew, the word for the spirit was ruah, the breath or wind. God breathed into Adam the breath of life. Ezekiel was told to summon the breath or wind of God over the valley of dry bones, and they came to life and rose up as a mighty army. In the Greek, the New Testament is written in, the word for breath or spirit is pneuma, like pneumonia or pneumatic tires. This is the arrival of God's holy ruah, or pneuma, his spirit. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit with great evidence. There's three unmistakable signs that accompany this morning of Pentecost and the arrival of God's Holy Spirit. First, there was suddenly something like the sound of a rushing wind, something they could hear. The ruah or pneuma of God had arrived. It was something like a mighty rushing wind. This was no morning breeze. Then there was an indicator they could see. Something like wicks of flames appeared on or near their heads and remained. This shouldn't surprise us either. Fire was a symbol of God, his holiness, his purifying effect. Think of God in the burning bush, or God sending a chariot of fire to pick up Elijah and bring him to his presence. And then a third sign arrived. They were given special tongues, tongues they hadn't mastered. These 120 followers of Jesus suddenly start to speak in every known language of those men assembled in the city. Luke cites them. He circles the Mediterranean Sea, Asia, Europe, and North Africa. What are they talking about in these tongues? They're talking about the mighty things God has done, undoubtedly through Jesus. Here's Jerusalem, packed with male pilgrims, men required to be there if they possibly could men from all over the Roman Empire. And here they are, hearing in their own language from these people, mostly Galileans, the mighty works of God, the gospel. These people note, wait a minute, most of these people are Galileans. They're talking a bit of smack there. They had a special accent. People from Jerusalem and hoity-toity Jews kind of looked down at them as sort of second-class hillbillies, as it were. These crowd of assembled men have two reactions. One is this. They were astonished and amazed, asking, what is going on here? These wonders that were happening, especially these Galileans being given fluency in an unstudied language, was working as a signpost, pointing them to something important. But others in the crowd reacted with disgust. They respond, these people are crocked. They're drunk. File that away. There's something in that statement we'll see again in the letter Paul writes to Ephesians. 
There, Paul contrasts being drunk with wine to being controlled by the Holy Spirit. We get the idea there's something somewhat similar between being under the influence of alcohol and under the influence of God's Holy Spirit. It's at this point, Peter, the rock, stands up to give some perspective to the astonished or disgusted males in front of him. Notice as he speaks, Peter is back. That talk Jesus had with him at the Sea of Galilee, the, do you love me, Pete, feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep, that stuck with Peter. You get the sense he feels 100% forgiven and 100% recommissioned. He steps up and the other 11 join him at his side. While Peter is speaking, you can bet these 11 are nodding vigorously in agreement. As you read Acts chapter 2, these aren't the same men who bolted from Gethsemane and who were hiding behind locked doors Easter weekend. Here's what Pete says. Gentlemen in the crowd, it's only 9 a.m. You're not seeing drunk people here. What you're seeing here is a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. It's coming to pass right before your eyes. Joel said, on the great day of the Lord, men and women, even the common ones like us, will prophesy and young and old men will dream dreams and have visions. Men in the crowd, it's the day the Lord promised, the day he would pour out his spirit. And someday, folks, God will pour out more than just his spirit, signs in the heavens, fearful ones, on that day the Lord returns. Here's what you all need to do. Call out on the name of the Lord Jesus. Jesus was attested to you by God. God did great signs and wonders through him. You nailed him to a cross, but God raised him from the dead. Then Peter quotes a Psalm of David, Psalm 18. It was a well-worn page in the Jewish songbook or Psalms book. In that Psalm, David writes, You will not abandon my soul to the grave, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Peter stops and stares. People, that can't be David talking about himself. We have his tomb. No, David is talking about the Messiah who would come from his line. And since God raised up Jesus from the grave just seven weeks ago, Jesus must be that Messiah. God raised him up, and we are all witnesses of this. I imagine the eleven giving a witness. Peter repeats, Jesus must be the Messiah. Quoting another psalm, Peter continues, David also writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. David's talking about his descendant Jesus there as well. If Jesus is sitting at God's right hand, he must also be God's son, the Lord. This Jesus of Nazareth, he is both Messiah and Lord. And now he sent the Holy Spirit as he promised. Here's how Peter's audience respond. They are cut to the heart. There it is, folks, the work of the helper. Jesus said he will convict the world of sin, of God's righteousness, and of coming judgment. Men in the crowd cry out, what must we do? Peter replies, repent. We've studied what that word means. It means to do a 180, to change your thoughts and attitudes, to leave skid marks and go the other way. Change their thoughts and attitudes about what? I should say, about whom? Repent about what you think about Jesus. Turn to him as both Messiah and Lord. Peter continues, Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. We've seen that baptism is going public about your all-in commitment to Jesus as Messiah and Lord. 
We've seen, too, that baptism doesn't forgive sins, and we'll talk more about that in the letters of the New Testament. What forgives sins is the shed blood of Jesus, the it-is-finished, paid-in-full, shed blood of Jesus applied to us. It would be appropriate to translate that statement, be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. Then Peter gives part three, receive the Holy Spirit as well. Having turned to Jesus and sins being forgiven, God's Holy Spirit wants to take residence in you. Luke reports, 3,000 of those men that day changed their mind about Jesus. They went all in on him as Messiah and Lord. They were baptized. At this point, we could sing the happy birthday song. Something is born at this moment. It's a baby church. Jesus talked about it. I will build my church. Now, it's a reality. The church, the body of Jesus Christ, has been born in Jerusalem on Pentecost. And what does that baby church of 3,000 plus do? Luke says four things. They listened to the teaching of the apostles. They had fellowship with each other. They shared meals with each other, ending in the Lord's table or communion. And they prayed. God's baby church, learning with each other, loving on each other, sharing meals with each other and communion, and praying. Four core values of the baby church. Now there's a small logistical problem we have. Many of those who believed were from out of town. They're pilgrims here for Pentecost. You don't just birth a baby and set them out on a doorstep. They need to be nurtured and fed. These pilgrims need to linger for a little while and be grounded in their new faith in Jesus as both Messiah and Lord. The Helper, the Spirit, prompts many of the local believers who've gone all in on Jesus to sell property and possessions and bring the money to support these pilgrims staying in town. Homes are opened to house them. Meals are prepared to feed them. Each day they go to the temple, and at night they're in each other's homes. We're told the attitude of this baby church. They had gladness of heart and sincerity. That word sincerity means without wax. There's an interesting story behind that term. Pottery was the staple for household containers. When a potter was done with a pot, if he was unscrupulous and there was a crack in it, after it came out of the kiln, he could press wax into the crack and sort of glaze it over. When you bought one of these pots, you'd hold it up to the sunlight. If there was a crack with wax, you could see a little light eking through it. These people had cracks, but they didn't fill them in to try to look better than they were. What you see was what you got, the real deal. They weren't perfect, but they were real. And Luke tells us they had favor with God and even with the locals who hadn't gone all in on Jesus. It's kind of hard to not like people who are real with a good attitude. We move to chapter 3. Peter and John entered the temple on one of these afternoons. It's about 3 o'clock, the hour of prayer. They see a lame beggar who's always at the same gate. Peter says, look at us. The beggar looks, hoping they're going to drop something into his hat. But Peter says, we don't have any silver and gold, but what we do have, we give to you. And Peter then drops a signpost down. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, we say to you, get up and walk. He pulls him to his feet, and the guy can walk. We're told he goes into the temple walking and leaping and praising God. Crowds gather. 
They'd seen this dude every single day they came for prayer. The power of Jesus has turned this guy into a signpost, and Peter uses that signpost to point to, wait for it, Jesus. Peter speaks again, don't look at us. It wasn't by our power that this man can walk. It was the power of Jesus. This Jesus is the Prince of Life. You disowned him and asked for a murderer instead. Then God raised him back to life, and we are witnesses of his resurrection. But people, hear this. You acted in ignorance. You followed the Old Testament script. So now do this. Repent. Change your mind about him. Return to him as Messiah and Lord, that God's times of refreshing may come. That's a pretty short sermon. But when Peter finishes, at least 2,000 more go all in on Jesus. Talk about church growth. Now the baby church in Jerusalem, just days after birth, number at least 5,000 men, plus women and children. We move to chapter 4. The religious people are up in arms. The temple priests, the Sadducees in charge, and the chief of police, the temple captain, show up. They are not happy campers. They lay hands on Peter and John and throw them in jail overnight. The next day, Annas and Caiaphas, the same two rascals who tried Jesus, call a council. They drag Peter and John before this council and ask, By what power did you do this miracle outside the temple to the lame man? This time, Luke makes it explicit. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, the Helper, answers their question. Council members, it was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. That's the power. Then Peter quotes Psalm 118. He is the stone you builders rejected, and he has now become the cornerstone. Then Peter gives his own little sermonette application. It's Acts 4.12. This might be one to memorize. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Where did Peter, the Galilean fisherman, get this boldness and learn to talk like this? Jesus had told him that would happen. Luke reports Jesus telling his disciples, And when you're brought to trial before these Jewish rulers and authority in the synagogues, don't be concerned about what to say in your defense, for the Holy Spirit will give you the right words even as you're standing there. Peter's doing this because of the helper. Here's what Luke says was the reaction of these learned, hostile religious men in the council. They recognize these uneducated men as having been with Jesus. I'd say more than that. The Holy Spirit sent by Jesus is speaking through them. The council orders them out so they can consult. Once in closed session, you can almost picture their comments and attitudes. Here we go again, gentlemen. What are we going to do? We can't deny a great miracle has occurred, but we got to nip this thing in the bud. They decide we'll intimidate them. We'll warn them to shut up about this Jesus of Nazareth guy. Peter and John are brought back in, and that's what they do. They warn them not to speak in the name of Jesus. To the religious leaders, the shepherds of Israel, Peter asks, Should we obey God or you men? Tell me. They threaten them, but Peter and John are fearless. The council adjourns. Peter and John return to the congregation of this baby church, and when they report what's happened, a worship service breaks out. 
They pray for boldness to continue to preach the resurrected Jesus, and they ask for God to continue to do great works, signposts to point more people to Jesus. As they're praying, Luke reports, the place they were gathered was shaken, and they all were filled with the Holy Spirit. That would have been something to witness, better yet, to experience. Acts 4 ends explaining people continued to be added to this baby church daily. These baby followers of Jesus continued in Jerusalem to learn and be grounded. They continued to share things in common to support the expenses of those staying. It's here we're introduced to one individual, Joseph, a Levite, also called Barnabas. His name means son of encouragement, and is he ever an amazing man, an important character in the book of Acts. Barnabas sees the growing economic needs. He has a tract of land, so he sells it. For a Jewish person to sell his inheritance a tract of land would have been a really big deal. He brings the money from the land, and he lays it down at the feet of the apostles. Here, guys, however you need to use it, okay? Barnabas, Mr. Encouragement. With Acts chapters 3 and 4, we get the foundation of the baby church. In episode 13, I talked about building domino towers. I mentioned how important it is to get the first few floors right, to set a good foundation. These two chapters in Acts give us a sense the church is getting off on a good foot, a good foundation. But it doesn't stay that way very long, and that favor among the people they were enjoying doesn't last very long either. We're going to see some significant problems surface, both outside this baby church and inside, in our next word picture.